everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around drinking coffee, talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 90, back to Regency England with Madeline Robbins. Welcome back, Madeline. Why, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I have to confess that I really wanted to do this because Bridgerton, I had really been enjoying it and I hit the end of the series and I'm like, why isn't Sarah Tolerance on TV? We can clearly do Bridgerton. Oh, Sarah Tolerance would be perfect. I love Sarah Tolerance. Madeline, tell us about your books, your Sarah Tolerance books. They were the first thing of yours that I ever read. Well, my Sarah Tolerance, I have to go back a little bit. My When I was a very small Madeline, I published five Regency romances, which were sort of run-of-the-mill, higher knockoffs. Um, I wrote the first one because I couldn't find anything that I wanted to read at that moment that I had not already read to death. And so I wrote this book, and at my mother's insistence, I sent it to a friend of hers who was an editor, and suddenly I was a writer. So I had done a lot of research about the Regency, which I think is an absolutely fascinating time. Fast forward mumble years, and I had this idea for essentially what was a Jane Austen, Dashiell Hammett uh, mashup, which is uh, a young woman of good family runs away with her brother's fencing master, thereby uh, ruining her prospects for anything that she formerly thought her life was going to be about. Uh, But she learns to fence, and when her lover dies, she returns to England and sets herself up is a PI, essentially. She goes down the mean streets of Regency London, and there were some really mean streets in Regency London, and rights wrongs and runs people through with swords and occasionally takes time out for a cup of tea or to hang out with the uh, employees of her aunt's brothel. Is that summing it up, Jeannie? I think that's perfect. So it's sort of like if you have Bridgerton as the top titled people looking for you know, the, the high dukes in society, and it's a little Austin-esque in that all the girls have to get married. Yours are very much the what's going on in all of the middle classes and back ends and alleys and fallen women. And that's what I really love about them. Hey, Mad, well, you actually don't have a fence, yeah. don't you? I used to. I would not, you know, I can mush around looking like I know what I'm doing. I studied stage combat for about six years and was for a while a certified SAFID uh, actor combatant, which means that I took various tests and was certified in rapier, rapier and dagger, quarterstaff, small sword and broadsword awesome. and hand to hand. So you're so badass. I was, I was the mother. Oh, well, I was the mother that all the other mothers at my children's school hated because when the kids were trying to mock fight, I would show them how to do it correctly so that nobody would get hurt. (laughs) And they thought I was encouraging violence. And all I was trying to do was save some bloody noses. (laughs) There are many reasons why my children think that I'm kind of an interesting mother to have grown up with. So this, this, you've translated this into the Sarah Tolerance books and the Sarah Tolerance herself Mm -hmm. fight crime or is she... How does she fit in? She fights crime. Uh, basically, she came back to England because she is, as she says at one point to somebody, good for none of the commonplace uses of young ladies, uh, because 
Bridgerton and Austin and many other of these things touch on the fact that once you lost your reputation, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't, I mean, there were women who had money or family or something behind them uh, who, if they slept with someone without benefit of clergy, uh, could be either they'd buy a husband for her or they would sort of hide her away or send her off to another country or something. But basically, what a woman brought to marriage, especially in the middle class, where the amounts of money being passed around were not necessarily huge, was her virginity. And if you lose that, you are a much less saleable commodity. So she can't be married. She can't run a household. And because there was what my younger daughter once referred to as a system of sex cooties, uh, this is why Marianne Dashwood riding around with um, Willoughby is skating close to the wind there because sailing close to the wind because she is letting herself be look uh, letting herself look like she might be not as careful with her virginity as she probably was. But if you were ruined or if they suspected you were ruined, you could not get a job, the sort of job that a genteel young woman would have, which is something like being a governess, being a companion. You couldn't even further down the social scale necessarily work in a hat shop or a glove shop because there would be this concern that you would, that your sin would be catching that you would infect all the other women in the shop and everybody would be out having mad sex, like, you know, a crazy person. As your daughter um, said, sex cooties. Yeah, sex cooties. Sex cooties, exactly. I thought that was like, you know, right there, there's a graduate level seminar in two words. <laughs> there are reasons why I'm afraid of my daughter. See, now I, I I'm was- still afraid of my daughter. I was contemplating, we because we never meet the man that Sarah Tolerance ran away with and thinking- Bridgerton has caused a bit of fuss here and there because, yes, we know that Queen Charlotte, because of her Portuguese ancestry on that one side, was Black, and that there were more Blacks in England. I was contemplating, and I went and looked up Black fencing masters and saying, could Sarah have run away? And I ran across a whole bunch of them, like starting, yep. there was, in America even, there was a Negro man named Thomas Butler, the famous pushing and dancing master, because <laughs> 18th century to push is to launch an attack with a small sword. Oh, oh. thank you. In case everybody wondered what a pushing master was. I so. did. I was going to ask. Well, <laughs> I also fence. <laughs> but he had a certain, he had fame on a local scale, and his former master had to say, Ah, well, he was a runaway, but they didn't know that he had a master, and we would like you to know that he did run away. But at the same time, he was fairly famous. Um, 1734, mm -hmm. Edward Blackwell published a treatise on the art of fencing. Uh, Tom Liss Butler was a black martial artist and instructor in white society. So there were, there were many historical blacks. And it feels like I love Bridgerton for starting to bring them in there. And then I started saying, what if, what if Sarah had run away for a black fencing master too? You don't ever really say. But she didn't. <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, if somebody buys the rights, they can cast whoever they want. But physically, he's based on a friend of mine who was a one of my fencing teachers. So at least in my head, he is a portly gentleman with a black beard and a deep, thundery voice. 
And part of the thing that was so wonderful about watching him fence was that he was a big guy, but he was just, he moved like an angel. Yes. Um, um, I mean, he could be a portly black man. It's just, you yeah. know, in my um, head, he's always is, this guy. This is, this, is, this is my question. Um, do you actually describe him at any point? Because if you don't, then... Um, I don't describe him as being white. I have that problem that I suppose white writers have, which is unless I actually think about somebody being uh, a person of color in my head, they're white because that's what I see in the mirror. In the next book, I am actually looping in bookbinding and fencing and uh, people of color in London at the time. I'm actually taking a famous uh, case from the 1770s or 80s, I think, involving a a slave that was brought to Britain by an American owner and the owner beat the guy so badly that the owner assumed that he killed him. He leaves the body in the street. He comes back a few years later and discovers that his slave is now a free man and is you know, working in a job and doing stuff. So he immediately says, well, you're mine. You have to come home with me. And this started a huge uh, court case in uh, England, which was pretty much the beginning of the move for abolition in yeah. England. What, what date was this, Matt? I think it's the 17, late 1770s. It might be right. 1780, but I'm going to just push it forward since, it's, since the Sarah Tolerance books are a slightly alternate history. Sure. I figure I can just move things around wherever I want because it's yeah. my book. But, no, no I'm, you know, I, I, I definitely have this thing in my head where it was well established by 1800, at least, that the moment um, slaves set foot on the was they were free. I believe it was by that time. Yeah. However, colonies were a different thing and oh, the well, slave yeah. trade was a different thing. Yeah. There's somewhere at home in my notes, I've got an actual timeline of when all these things uh, came to pass. A whole hell of a lot earlier than in the United States, of course. Absolutely. And I did a little bit of this, too. I I understand you and I both started with one of the same books, Gretchen Gruzina's Black London, Life Before Emancipation. Mm -hmm. Started me down like a beautiful rap. First of all, everybody should read it. It's available. I'll put a link in in the notes on it. But it started me down of saying, well, how early was it? And five Africans arrived in England in 1555 because they wanted to do trade, which of course you want to do trade. Trade is, you know, you're an island. You don't have it. You make it. You trade for it. And 1596, there were so many Black people in England that Queen Elizabeth started issuing edicts on the topic. But she had too many. <laughs> she no had more. musicians. James the Fourth employed black musicians. She had maid servants, and they took me down finding that well, they wouldn't want them around because they were Moorish and Muslim, and they were being nope, nope. We are Protestant, I tell you, which which started me about the roots of how many English names come from the word Moor. Like first of all, I'm thinking, of course, Ooh. Roger Moore jumps immediately to mind, but Blackmore and Morris, Morris and Murray, Morrow. Wasn't Blackmore a place in England? I don't know, Chaz. I knew you were going to look at me. I <laughs> don't know of a place called Blackmore, though it's perfectly possible and probably probable. Um, because they do have moors. That we do get, have moors. That you get stuck in yes. when you walk through them. Yes, and black dogs baying at you scarily. 
Yes. Ah, Blackmore is a village in East Hampshire, district of Hampshire. Well, there you go. Southwest of Morden, west of the A325. So, yeah. Yeah. The internet is here for us. I'm confused with Blackamore. No, very different. Which was a term for a person of color. What's up? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But that's that's different. It it seems that one of the biggest problems was the breakdown of the feudal system because at once upon a time, everybody had their place, right? All Mm. land was owned, all people were (coughs) quietly owned. Yeah. You had indentured servants, you had land workers, you had the tenants, landlords, everybody had a place, but it was really breaking down. And this was, there was a big fear of disorder and a lot of people, well, the poor, of course, were to blame with it, which was the first of the poor laws too. So you started getting things about poverty and vagrancy and having musicians in town after dark, which is really a bad idea. <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. Musicians after dark, always a problem. Oh, my yeah. God. Lock up your daughters. Especially drummers. Yeah. <laughs> well, trumpet players. Henry VIII had a black trumpet player. Very famous. In the, it was the 1400s, right? And uh, the Great Plague that yeah. killed, killed everybody and really changed society because all of a sudden everybody needed more peasants. So your peasants could get up and walk <laughs> it somewhere else where they'd get paid better or treated better or whatever. And so suddenly having an influx of other people would be a good thing, although obviously it became too much of a good thing. So the timing would be right for, um, you know, needing, having room for more people coming in. Well, Queen Charlotte, who was married to the mad King George, apparently was directly descended from Margarita de Castro y Sousa. I'm sorry for probably butchering that. But they were a black branch of the Portuguese royal house. And through there's a whole bunch of 15th century Flemish paintings put down that like, yes, which means the Portuguese de Souza family had spread out everywhere. So through the Netherlands, which means that Queen Victoria was directly descended from a woman who was partially black. Awesome. Well, 23andMe tells me that I have um, blood from Western Africa, and um, which doesn't surprise me because my family's from the South. Um, I also, my, my great grandmother was, um, was half Cherokee. So that also doesn't surprise, you know, we're, there's been, there's so many opportunities for mixing blood because, you know, no matter, you know, no matter who, no matter where, you know, just people get together, they fall in love or they have a war or something. Or rape. And, exactly. And suddenly kids appear and they're, they have, they're their parents' kids, and then they have more kids somewhere else, and DNA travels. Um, so, well, well, The Guardian had a great quote in uh, 2009 that said, the suggestion that Queen Charlotte was Black implies that her grand- granddaughter, Queen Victoria, and her great-great-great-great-granddaughter, which is Queen Elizabeth II, had African forebears. Perhaps instead of being just a bunch of, a boring bunch of semi-inbred white stiffs, our royal family becomes much more interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's they true. feel kind of even worse for poor Megan then. Yes, yeah. that's the point. Yeah, the press there would, oh, geez. But there was some interesting, when I started, this was a, a rat hole to go down about, it's, it's true that somebody had a good quote, and I think it was from that book, correct me if I'm right, Madeline, that the English didn't really see themselves as white until they really started having trade with Africa. Well, you don't question what your default is. And if, other than Othello or something, there were occasional, I mean, during the Crusades, you would go 
some people would go overseas, they would encounter people in the Middle East who look different, but that was, that was exoticism. It's when they start living in your country that you start, I think, sort of codifying degree to which you are one thing and they are another thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have assigned values to that and it all goes to hell in a handbag. Yeah. Well, I was reading in the paper um, a couple of days ago that in 1942, uh, the U.S. passed a law that said all Japanese people could be rounded up and put in camps. And it wasn't that actually wasn't repealed and taken off the book till 1979. Um, So speaking of there's more than just people of African descent who, you know, uh, black people, anyone who was not white was treated, was identified as different and um, treated differently and badly. Although it sounds like in England, it started off just fine. And then, um, and then they, and they needed to scapegoat. How can we do in the U S also, there was, there were different kinds of when you became white, my husband's family is half Italian. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. there would be signs up that said, no Italians need apply, no Irish who yeah. are generally pretty damned white yeah. need apply. Yeah. So that, you know, at some point I go back on my mother's side of the family to pretty much the Mayflower, sort of some of them. Uh, although my mother very helpfully noted to me when I was a kid that probably all the people in my family back that far were axe murderers and rapists. <laughs> um, she was not the DAR type. Uh, and on my father's side, it's complete black box because my grandparents came from Russia in 1900. And I don't know anything other than my grandfather's parents' first names about what the name originally was, any of that stuff. So it's like, I did an ancestry DNA uh, test that says that I am from exactly where I know I am from on that side mm-hmm. and gives me absolutely no clarity. My daughter is trying to a- ask me about this stuff and she said, well, why didn't, why didn't they want to be Rabinowitz? Why did they change their name? In 1900 in America, you weren't fully white if yeah. you were a Jewish family from Ukraine. Hilarious. Did you guys ever see the movie, The Gangs of New York? No. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, yeah. It was inspired by, there was a guy named Herbert Asbury, who in 1927 had a nonfiction book called The Gangs of New York. That's a story about those horrible Irishmen coming in and ruining our country. Oh, really? Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's it just any new group that moves in, when they move in, they, they, they seem to have brought some of the struggles from before with them. But now everybody's Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Again, <laughs> well, I love how they yeah, made these things up to bring us wrong. together. Well, Louisa May Alcott, who you know, was all abolitionist all the time because she was part of the transcendentalists and they were all behind abolition, was blistering about the Irish. Mm. So there what are all mean? sorts of ways to draw these lines. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. There was something that was sort of funny that down the rat hole that PBS's page sent me on. Have you guys ever heard of like the legends of Prester John? Yes, yes. of course. Yeah. Yes. I did yep. not know that he was actually emperor of Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah. So um, basically this, this is a black man who was priest and king, ruled a land of peace and plenty at the edge of the world and was the persona of the ideal state. And to his arms, the sea of freezing is the bust of a crowned blackamoor. So 
this is from 12th century on saying that at one time this was able to be admired. So it seems like we, we human beings have an ability to saying, I need a bad guy and oh, we'll twist always. anything. Yes. Always. It's the other team. It's the other town. It's the other, just make up anything that's other. We always find it. We always hate it. It's I'm getting also, depressed now. I know I am too. <laughs> I'm depressed. Let's talk about. Oh, yeah, Matt, 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 I had a question for you. Yes, yes, yes. Um, um, mm -hmm. um, your Regency romances are they available? Yes. Hooray! Where can we? Um, they are. They are available online in ebook form. Is this? I believe they are available me? on Amazon. But they're there. We can get them. They're there. Hooray! Hooray! They can be found. And, and they're fantastic. Ready. So I, that if somebody, I'll if you. If you watched Bridgerton, I think we need to talk about all of the good literature out there. Sarah Tolerance is, is marvelous. Who do you, else do you recommend that somebody read if they love your time? Who um, are your favorites? Well, if you, if you have never discovered Georgette Heyer, uh, the Regency she writes about is not actually the English Regency in many ways. It's what a friend of mine refers to as a silver fork Mm. novel kind of thing. So a lot of the things that she used and other literary descendants of hers use are actually more later um, or based on somewhat spurious sources that she found to be compelling. But Georgette Heyer is sort of the gateway drug for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, because she more or less invented... Sorry, Matt, I'm talking over you, shocking. Um, but she did more or less right. invent the... Um, the Regency Romance. Um, she did, indeed. And, and she's become the model that I think all Regency Romances since. Have, for, for her own model, she had Jane Austen. For everybody else since her, we have Georgia yes. Hay, yes. which is not, a, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily a plus because people do take her errors and expand them and her social... Oh, yeah. She was... Uh, I, At a point when I was... Okay, I, I, read, I, read, I read a biography of her written by a woman who also wrote um, Regency Romances, among other Oh, others. Jane Aiken Hodge? Yes. Um, Jane Aiken Hodge's file? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like Hodge actually now better than I like Hire. Yeah. Um, Hodge wrote one of the books that I love most. It's not Regency. It's contemporary. Um, it's called Last Act. Oh, which one? And it's brilliant. Oh, I love that one. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's got everything. It's got princes in disguise and secret tunnels, and it takes place in Mauritania. Um, but huh. um, no, I'm the, my point was that um, this after this particular book, after the bio biography, I, I kind of lost respect for both writers because Georgette Heyer was obviously a horrible person, and Jane yeah. Aiken Hodge admired her very greatly. It's kind of a hagiography. But no, it's intended to be a hagiography, and actually, mm. she comes out of it dreadfully. I feel so. What was so horrible? Well, I haven't read it. Dead hair. In She's a snob of the very, very worst kind. I mean, I mean there's, there's one of her one of her favourite books of mine. One of my favourite books of hers is these these old shades, which in oh, which it that. is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lovely, book lovely book, but it has this sort of shocking principle embedded in it. Um, that if you are of the aristocracy, your features are fine and and your tastes will be fine and yada yada doo And if you are of the peasant class, um, you will be coarse and thick and and you will only want to because there's a 
there's a swap over and and two natures come out and she Peter actually Bill believed this so i'm georgette hire is sort of like the baroness orxy <laughs> who could really actually write <laughs> yeah yeah i i had to do a comic book version of uh scarlet pimpernel and first off i was surprised at how dreadful the book was it has like four great set pieces and the rest of it is just tedium and then and then the there was naked um yeah and then the naked class stuff and the anti-semitism and the mm-hmm. you know the england uber alles mm-hmm. it's just stunning yeah yeah it's awful and right well i wanted to throw one more out there for those that loved Bridgerton and enjoyed all of the beautiful scenes with the backside of the Duke of Hastings. Are you aware that Thomas Alexander Dumas, the father of Alexander Dumas, who is the author who wrote Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, was actually mm-hmm. half black? Yes. Yeah. He was, yes. that they basically, he was born in, this the son of the Marquis Alexandre Antoine David de la Patelière and Marie Cassette Dumas, who was his Haitian slave. So, they had kids. He sold his kids into slavery in order to afford to go back and really. Yeah, he did. It's I fantastic. That. <laughs> that's that's, that's really bad parenting. Well, <laughs> you know, basically, it's it was out of a Haitian area which was called Monte Cristo. If you're wondering where young yeah. Alexander Dumas, when he's 14, his oh. father sold him in three siblings into slavery in Port-au-Prince in order to raise funds to get back. And then some months later, his father came back, repurchased his son, and had him sent to France, leaving his siblings behind in Haiti, where they remained as slaves. Oh, holy oh, fuck. That's so, grandpa. I was going to say, there's a fellow named Tom Reese did a pretty good biography called Black Count. And so I, if you loved the Duke of Hastings, I just wanted to say, there's a real life one you can look at. And everybody knows about Alexander Dumas. But do you realize that he was one quarter black? His father was half black. And he spent some time as a slave. I didn't know about the slavery. That's that's just really fascinating. There are contemporary engravings of Dumas in which you can quite clearly see the black blood in him. It's it's in his face, it's in his features. Oh, exactly. I mean, and his dad, it's perfectly also overlapped in the same timeline as Bridgerton. I mean, let's see. The, yep. He was born in six, 1762. So his son was born how much after that? So, Yeah. He is perfectly the Duke of Hastings, who was the first, basically came along and became an officer in the French Revolution and became a nobleman of France from this. Nothing like war to move you up the social chain. Here's to a bloody war and a sickly season. It is the junior officer's toast. I love it. Are you writing anything fun now, coming out soon? I have a story coming out in fantasy and science fiction this spring, but I don't know the date yet, which is a a fantasy about a young person who, who is born male and his mother has him enchanted so that he believes he is female so that he will not go off to war and merriment ensues and war ensues also well, of course. So Excellent. often happens. Um, and because I've read... This year has been horrible. I, I, I've yes. read a draft, a book four of Sarah Tolerance, so, and I'm not going to give teasers, but I'm going to say, can you give us any hints? 
I, this year has been horrible creatively. I mean, I have been doing almost everything else in the world rather than write. So and I'm ashamed of myself, but oh, well. Hey, she helps, her, she helps run <laughs> the American Bookbinders Museum, which is, that's a beautiful thing to do. Sourdough, bookbinding, working, working on, we had a wonderful uh, exhibit, which is still online on um, suffrage in uh, celebration of the uh, 25th Amendment, 20, uh, the one where we got the vote. So it has been a busy year. It's also been just sort of a somewhat dispiriting year or a disorganizing year for getting my brain wrapped around fiction. And, and there were politics and, and swearing at the television set and things mm. like that. Let us all just but raise a toast to on, that 2021 is going to be better. Well, please, God. Here, here. Yes. I mean, no, I will say January, I've heard it posited that January was actually the 13th month of 2020. <laughs> uh, That's fair. There was weird shit going on there. So I am back working on Sarah Tolerance number four. Yay. There are a couple of things that don't quite work yet, and I need to figure out the connecting tissue. I seem to be having a hard time focusing. And I'm also, Ginny, you will be happy to know that I just picked up uh, Ivy and was tinkering with that. Yay. For those of you out there, Ivy has the best opening line of any book in the world. (laughs) Well, it's a contemporary fantasy set in San Francisco. has nothing to do with the English Regency at all. It's great, but it's awesome. Hang on, we need that opening line. That was it. (laughs) Even dead, my father took up all the air in the room. It that starts out that. at the heroine's uh, father's wake yeah. and goes on from there. Her relationship with her father is even more confusing than she knows at that point. <laughs> we will put links to the podcast and to all of your fascinating and wonderful books on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. She answers email too. Everybody should send lots of letters and cheer up our delightful Madeline. Yay. <laughs> You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, for of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are Art, Coffee, Chocolate, Rum, and Bookbinding. So we love Jackal Designs and the American Bookbinders Museum in downtown San Francisco. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>